I think it's a real um, great thing that we are studying the Old Testament on Wednesday nights and the New on Sunday mornings. And <clears throat> the neat thing, one of the neat things for me is to be in Exodus 16, working through the manna that uh, God rained down from heaven, and then to see in John chapter 6, Jesus say that He is the bread of heaven. And I have the privilege of teaching both of those simultaneously, which, once again, I think is the providence of God. I don't, I don't think that's by accident. Exodus chapter 15, we'll finish up the uh, end of the chapter and then jump into chapter 16. And before we do that, let's seek the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the word of God, which indeed, Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus, you are the bread of God. You are the giver of true life. And tonight, we just want to humble ourselves before you. We pray that you'll open up our hearts to your word. Help the, the church be open to the work of the Spirit. Father, mold us and shape us and teach us wonderful things from your word and help us to walk out of here people who have been touched by you, strengthened, nourished in our souls. And we just, we're just so grateful for all you've provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Exodus chapter 15. Now, if you weren't with us last week, um, Oscar did a great job in taking us through the song of Moses or the song that the children of Israel sang in the wake of crossing the Red Sea. And what happened, as you know, is they were basically cornered. The Egyptian army was coming to uh, destroy them. And all of a sudden, God opened up the way. And He miraculously parts the Red Sea. And as we saw last week, they walked through on the dry ground, which was a miracle in and of itself. And now, uh, they sing this song of rejoicing. And if you look at... Uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Then Moses, 15.1, and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, look at just a few of the highlights. They said, The Lord is highly exalted. They dropped down to verse 2. End of verse 2, they said, I will praise Him. I will extol Him. And on and on the song goes to recount the wonderful, miracle-working power of the Lord. And when you're in a church service on a Sunday morning, you're doing very much the same thing. As praise songs uh, emanate through a building like this and the church begins to sing, you are praising and extolling God for His marvelous work of salvation, for the times that He ministers directly into your life and changes your heart and works in different situations and ministers to you peace in difficulty and, and all the things that He does gives you that divine appointment that you know was from Him. You hear testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness to pull us out of the slave house and rescue us and save us. And when we sing songs... When we praise God, what we're doing is we're extolling Him. We're worshiping Him. We're saying literally the word worship comes from worship. We're saying you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. But how many times have we left a, a church function like that, a worship service, and kind of taken two steps backward? You know, we could be on one end, many of us love to raise our hands, but you don't have to raise your hands, but... 
we can be like this, you know, raising our hands in worship, and the next minute we can be raising our hand, but not in such a good way. And James says, you know, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. He says, with your mouth, with that tongue of yours, you glorify God, you'll praise Him, and then you'll curse your brother who's been made in the image of God. And then he says, these things shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't be that inconsistent. But we'd have to all admit that we often are. Now, what we're hoping is that the scales are tipping more in the area of consistency than they are in the area of hypocrisy. We don't want to be hypocrites. And when the Bible talks about worship, the Bible is not simply telling you to sing worship songs. The Bible uses the idea of worship for a life, or you could say it this way, a lifestyle of worship. And so the children of Israel, you know, they've just been delivered. And, and, you know, wouldn't you say that some of the highest times of worship for you have been in the wake of some marvelous move of God in your life? You know, you see him, in, in, in a way, part the Red Sea for you. And you walk through on dry ground. And you come out the other side and you look back and the Egyptian army is drowned and God has conquered an enemy, and you're on the other side going, the Lord is great, the Lord is good, I will extol His name. But then something happens to the children of Israel. And their reason for complaining, I'm going to submit to you tonight, is much better than most of our reasons. And here's their reason. Verse 22 says, Then Moses, this is chapter 15, led Israel from the Red Sea, And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went out three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now they didn't have their little Aquafina water bottle on them. They took some water, however they carried it in pouches and stuff like that. But the water was gone. And the children of Israel went from tambourine dancing and worshiping the Lord to saying, I am thirsty. Where is the agua? Where do we go? There's two million people in the desert. And you got to feel for Moses here. Moses, verse 22, led Israel from the Red Sea. In verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Moses and the sons of Israel sang. So it's almost like Moses was the worship leader, but he was also the leader. And you got to feel for leaders. And I can really, I can, <laughs> I can relate to leaders. Because you have some great highs as a leader. You know, you get to see people uh, touched by the Lord and you get to hear their stories and you even get to see how maybe you impacted their life. But when things go wrong, oh boy, then you get all of the opposite side, which is all the difficult stuff. And it just comes with being a leader. And so here is Moses and the people start to complain and when they came to Marah, verse 23, they could not drink the waters of Marah for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara, which literally does mean bitter. And so the people grumbled at Moses and said, What shall we drink? And that word for grumbled there is a word that in Hebrew means to grumble. Just want to see if you're awake tonight. Um, There's a Greek word that Paul writes in, and you might want to write this verse down in Philippians 2.14. He says this. This is probably one of the most convicting Bible verses you're going to come across. Philippians 2.14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
And when Paul uses the word grumble, he uses a Greek word, gagusmas, and it means to mutter. And some uh, theologians believe that the idea is to mutter under your breath. And kind of one of those things. Gagusmas. It's the idea of the grumbler, the complainer. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, Paul said, 9 and 10, he said, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, talking about Israel, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them, them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then he says this, These things happen to them, this is 1 Corinthians ten eleven, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, Paul says, the wilderness wanderings of Israel were recorded, at least in, for one specific purpose, to teach us what not to do. But you have to say, from a human standpoint, to go three days without drinking water is pretty brutal. I mean, have you ever fasted from food for three days? I mean, some of you have practiced fasting and you know that the first day, especially of fasting, oh boy, everything in your flesh is screaming at you. What are you doing? Right? Your stomach begins to growl and all of the natural processes of all those years when you ate and and did what you did now all of a sudden it's not there and the stomach begins to talk to you literally i'm down here what's going on and you're going no 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 you can't have anything boy it's tough and the people began to grumble one commentary said you could say murmuring or grumbling, grumbling, I'm sorry, is like complaining under your breath. When we are constantly, constantly complaining, listen to this, about things and finding fault with others, it is impossible for us to have the joy of the Lord. And then Paul uses this word, he says, don't grumble or dispute. And he uses the word um, that has to do with um, logic. And he says this, it refers to reasoning or questioning. When we get, we get the word dialogue from this word. The word logic plus the preposition through, this Greek word, carries the idea of thinking through things and coming out with a different opinion. It is used in a bad sense here to refer to a person who is always questioning and disagreeing with others. The person never has the joy of the Lord because he is looking for the opportunity to disagree or have another opinion. There's a time, of course, to have other opinions and for those to be shared. But this verse, this is Philippians 2.14, is referring to one whose constant attitude is like this. And the idea of the root word is dissatisfaction. And so what the idea to take this full circle is the children of Israel are dissatisfied with their circumstances. They are not happy and they're making it known to the leader, Moses. Now, on one end we can understand three days without water is very difficult. But on the other hand, what has just happened to these people? They have just seen 10 plagues in Egypt where God conquered the enemy. They've just passed through a sea where God miraculously made the water go into huge walls and they passed through on dry ground. Now what are they thinking? Are they thinking that now he's going to let them all die in the wilderness? Well, if you were an Israelite, 
and three days with no agua was hitting you, what would you do? Would you say, oh, I know the Lord is faithful. I've learned my lesson. I've seen at least 11 miracles happen. And the fact that I haven't drank for three days, you know what? I'm just going to worship. I'm just going to believe that God's going to supply. Would that be your attitude? Or would you be going to look for someone to talk to? (laughs) Would you be looking for the leader? Or one of the people that knows the leader? What is going on? Yes, we've seen 11 miracles, but the clock is ticking and we're thirsty. And you can even think of people with children. My kid's thirsty. Now what would you do? Would you complain? Would you be quick to question God? I mean, after all, they could justify it in their mind. Hey, we were in Egypt for 400 years and where was he? Maybe he just brought us out here and he's, got, he's working on something else. What, what's going to happen? And, you know, let's admit, we all rotate these things through our mind when things are going on, don't we? When we have things that are before us, we say, where is God? Do you remember when, on Sunday, when we talked about the disciples in the boat facing the storm? How long did Jesus wait until he came walking on the sea? Probably a good eight hours that they were straining at those oars. And then he came, remember, in the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. Why does God do that? Why, why does he do it? He's got a sense of humor. He does it to test us. And, and do you remember what we talked about tests are for? What was one purpose of the test? Let's see how good your memory is. Builds character. We know James talks about that. What else? To make us stronger in one sense and softer in another sense. Okay. What else does it do? Remember, it's to give us certainty about God. And it's also to help us to be people of worship. And so as you look at this, three days they go. And uh, so what does Moses do? Verse 25, and Moses is a wise man because Moses, verse 25, cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. You know, James says this. Tell you what, hold your finger in Exodus and turn to the book of James. Let's, Let's turn over there. James is talking about trials and difficulties. James 1. Towards the back of your New Testament. James 1. And I want you to see the context of this because it's important. James 1. Let's look at uh, verse 2. James 1, 2. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren. Are you there? Book of James, okay? End of the New Testament, pretty much. If you're not there, just, just listen to it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But, here's verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What did Moses do in the middle of the situation? He asked God. He cried out to God. Go back to Exodus. He said, Lord, help me. The the idea of crying out to God is probably, we could say it that way, help me, Lord. What are are we going to do? We have no water here. He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord 
showed him a tree. And he threw it, this is back in Exodus 15, 25, he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and regulation and there he tested them. So they come upon these waters, the waters are bitter and bitter is a good word to describe what's going on in the hearts of these people. They're bitter, they're angry, they're murmuring. The waters that they could have drunk are bitter and Moses cries out and he says, Lord, I need your help and the Lord points out a tree. And when the tree is thrown into the waters, they become sweet again. Now there's no evidence in any natural uh, phenomena that we know of that would make bitter waters sweet from wood going into them. So this is a miracle of God. God instructs Moses to do this and the tree goes in and that which was bitter becomes sweet. And I was thinking of the idea of a tree and in Galatians 3.13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And I was thinking, you know what? This is what Jesus has done for us. He's made things that could be very bitter, sweet by his death on the cross and through his resurrection. That cross took the bitterness of the law, the curse that was upon us and has given us the sweetness of spiritual life. Notice back in uh, Exodus 15.25, there God made for them a statute and regulation and here it is, and there he tested them. If you want the idea of the word test there, It's defined this way by one author. He says, A test is to subject you to difficulty in order to prove the quality of someone or something. The Hebrew word was used uh, throughout the Old Testament for tests at Rephidim, Sinai, and other places. So really, the idea of testing is to prove. And the New Testament word is to put you to the proof. It's to test the quality of something. Or someone. Now let me ask you a question. When everything is going well in your life and everything's groovy and everything's falling into place, is that a test of your commitment to God? Is that a test of your love for God? For example, if you heard a preacher say to you, hey, what you can do is come to church and pray for your shiny black new Cadillac. And God is going to give it to you. And so, let's say that you prayed for that shiny black new Cadillac. And you walked out of church and someone gave you a black Cadillac. You're thinking to yourself, Woohoo! God is good, right? Shiny black new Cadillac, right? <laughs> Sorry, I should... i got to change my car choice. <laughs> Nobody has a red Corvette in the church. I remember I talked about a Mercedes one time. And somebody in the church said, I was so convicted I have a Mercedes. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was just, I didn't think anybody here drove a Mercedes. But anyway. <laughs> but um, if everything's going cool in your life, it's pretty easy to, to do this. Oh, Lord, you're so good. You're so great. But three days after no water, now you're kind of put to the proof. Now God's kind of saying, hey, will you guys... Sing Moses' song after you haven't drunk for three days? Or do you only sing the song of Moses after I part the Red Sea and drown your enemy? 
Is that the only time you'll sing? Will you sing when things are not perfect? Will you sing when it gets a little difficult? Or am I only your great candy machine in the sky? And so when you come to me and I deliver the bar that you want, the candy bar you want, and it comes down and you get to eat it, well, then you're cool. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 6, he says, you guys follow me, but you follow me because I fed you. He said, don't seek for the stuff that perishes. What's God trying to do in people's lives? He's trying to mold us and shape us and, and work on our spiritual person. And when you haven't eaten anything or drunk anything for a while, and maybe it wasn't by your own personal choice, in this case you don't have anything, that's putting you to the proof. That's God saying, in essence, will you worship me no matter what happens in this situation? And we'd all have to admit tonight that those are the times when we are really terribly tested. I remember one time we were up at a men's retreat and a pastor was telling a story about how I believe it was a wife or child that had become uh, deathly ill. And so he was praying and praying and praying and he was saying, Lord, you know, trying to make deals with God. God, if you spare, you know, this loved one, then I'll do this and I'll do that. And he said he got a real sense in his heart that God said, your child's going to live, but if I took your child, would you still worship me? And he said, you know what? He was challenged as a Christian at that point because that was really something that couldn't even conceivably come into his mind. I remember John Corson one time told a story of how he came into a free flow prayer service and he said there was a time when people could come to the altar and just pray. And so he said as he was there, he said that he, he looked to the front of the church and there was a man on his knees near this altar and these candles and the man had his hands lifted up and he was praising God. And he said, what was so striking about that is that the day before, that man had lost his wife and daughter to a car accident. You see, that's, that is a putting to the proof. That's asking the question about motivation. And you know what? As I say these things, I have to tell you that this is a hard concept for all of us. Because, look... We want everything to fall into place in this life. We all love it when things are going well. But there's something that God does, and He does it in His own way, and sometimes He uses circumstances that happen to, to produce this. And He starts to test the metal. And He goes deeper than sometimes we ever could imagine. He says, what's, what's really in there? What's your true motivation? Is it for my glory or for yours? Do you do what you do because you think I'm coming through for you? But if something swung, if something changed that you couldn't explain or you didn't understand, would you still serve me? Would you still proclaim my gospel message? In two weeks from tonight, we're going to have the African Children's Choir here at the church. 26 children that have melted the hearts of many people around this nation and other nations. But all 26 of those 6 to 10 year old kids live in one of the worst environments that you could ever imagine in the country of Africa. And most, if not all, of the 26, if you're here that night, 
that stand up there will have lost one or both of their parents to AIDS or starvation. And yet they're singing about the joy and salvation of the Lord. How is that possible? How is, how is it that one can, can speak of such things in the wake of disaster? In the wake of difficult circumstances? Well, here's what God says in verse 26. He says, If you, and here's a if, and you might want to underscore this, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord. Verse 26. If you will give earnest heed to the voice of your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. If you're a list maker or a note taker, here's the list. Number one, God said, I want you to listen carefully to my voice. Number two, I want you to do what's right in my eyes. Number three, I want you to pay close attention to my commandments. And number four, I want you to keep all my statutes. And then the Lord says this, if you will do these things, then I will be to you Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, your healer. How so? Because there's a way that life works, folks, and this is true in a general sense. And here's how it works. If you, uh, Ephesians 6 quotes a commandment back in the Old Testament, it says this, honor your father and mother, for this is right in the sight of the Lord. He says, then he goes on, he says, for if you do this, you'll live a long life. We've kind of joked about that and said, if you don't honor your father and your mother, they might just take you out and your life might be short. But I say that to my kids all the time. But no, I'm just kidding. But there's a principle in Scripture, a general principle, that if you keep the commands of the Lord, you do what's right, you honor Him, He will honor that. There's a law in Scripture of sowing and reaping. Now, there are certainly some things that we'd have to say are outside of those bounds as well. But in a general sense, there is a definite law, Galatians 6, of sowing and reaping. Whatever a man sows to, he will also reap. And so what the Lord's saying is, if you'll do these things, if when I test you, you'll stay true to your convictions. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but you'll stay true to your convictions. Then I will be Jehovah Rapha to you. Whatever happens to you, whatever you go through, I'll heal you. I'll touch you. I'll be in the midst of that situation. Then they came to Elam, verse 27, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Then they sent out from Elam, verse 16, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Some believe that this wilderness of Sin comes from the term Sinai. Of the 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Here they go again. You see, now... God had delivered the water, you remember, the tree went in, the bitter waters became sweet, everybody drank, and they were on the heels of another victory. But you know what had happened? 
They didn't have any food. They got water, but they didn't get food. And so as they're walking away from the bitter waters that became sweet, they said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Where's my cheeseburger? I got my iced tea, but where's my burger? Right? And the people, notice the people, the whole congregation of the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and they even added Aaron into the mix. They said, you're his brother. You're the one that came over here and told us to listen to him. And now look what's happened. Oh yeah, we know we saw the tree go in and the bitter waters become sweet, but there's no more miracles after this. We're doomed. It's all over. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. You ever say dumb things when you're in a situation where things aren't going so well? I wish I would have died back there. Why did you ever bring me in? We can all fill in the blank, right? No, Joe. (laughs) Joe's the exception, right? What a dumb thing to say. But in essence, what they're saying is, and you know in that 10th plague, I wish I was never behind that blood-stained door. I wish the Lord would have just killed me. Right on the spot. Some of the prophets have said that through the Bible, you remember? Lord, just take me out now. There's nobody else left. Nobody follows you anymore. This world is terrible. Take me, right? We've all probably been there. Said it in one way or the other. I wish you would have killed me back in Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Talk about complaining and murmuring and boy, how quickly these people swing, you know. And like I said at the beginning, it's pretty easy to point a finger at them until we look at our own lives. Sometimes we walk out of a church service, you know goes a little extra. By the way, if you complain about an extra 15 minutes in a church service, you're probably not born again. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that wasn't even in my notes, but anyway. <laughs> That's only something that a preacher would say, by the way. <laughs> Oh, where was I? <laughs> the people, they're hungry. And so here they go again. And, and they, they say, I wish that I would have died in one of those plagues. I wish, at least when I was in slavery in Egypt, every other time I got hit with the taskmaster's whip, you know what I was next to? A pot of meat or some bread. They had good restaurants back there. I know we were in slavery, but hey! We got to eat. Now this deliverer, I know that he parted the Red Sea and the plagues and everything. But this deliverer, water became sweet, you know, and he's brought us out here to kill us all. Now if you're God and you're up in heaven working on the behalf of these people and testing them, I wonder what it did to the heart of God. There's places in the Bible that say that Israel broke God's heart. And, you know, we've all been there before. And here's our difficulty. 
Our difficulty is when we're in that waiting room. That divine waiting room. And we have to wait. We have to wait for an answer. We have to wait for provision. We just don't like it. Now in Isaiah 40, 31, the Lord says, those who wait upon the Lord will what? Renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. But when I'm in that waiting room, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I can be very impatient when I'm waiting. And sometimes God puts us in His divine waiting room because He's doing something. But when He's doing it and I'm waiting, Isaiah 40, 31 doesn't always immediately come to my mind. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up. Sometimes I'm doing a lot of flapping my wings and quacking, you know. When is this going to be over? And what's taking these people? You know? And maybe the Lord wants to do something. I was uh, going to the dentist <laughs> last week. We, uh, we had, as we typically do in my household, because there's three boys and an older boy named Dad, we're having a wrestling match in the living room. <laughs> I always do this right before bedtime because it really makes my wife really happy. Anyway, so, no, it's just, you know, we get into it. We're just guys. Well, anyway, my youngest son's foot came across and smacked me in the jaw. And at the time, I didn't think much of it, but he kind of jarred one of my teeth. And so I had to have the blessed root canal. Have you all experienced the root canal? Oh, it's so much fun. And so <clears throat> there I was, and I went to the dentist office, and I think it was the Tuesday after the men's breakfast, and sitting in the chair ready to get a root canal, you know. And the dentist always asks you questions with his fist in your mouth, you know. So are you having a good day? <laughs> right? <laughs> you ask me, I can't talk to you, right? So I got to witness to one of the ladies uh, who was one of the dental assistants. And so I had a follow-up appointment, and they were going to do the little cap thing, and and so I walked in there, and there was a, a little dental assistant who saw one of my books. And she says, are you a pastor? And I says, yeah. She, no, she said, what church do you go to? And I said, Calvary Church Corner. And I said, I'm the pastor there. And she said, oh, my gosh. And she started literally shaking and sweating. And she says, I don't know if I can do my job right now. And I said, what? She says, I've been backslidden for four years. And she said, God's been talking to me in the last two days. And she said, <clears throat> when you walked in here, what was going through my mind was, I need to call a church to get prayer. And I walked in there getting a follow-up exam for a root canal. And I don't want to be here. What's going on? Why am I knowing you? Kid, 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 my, you know, all the stuff, right? And she said, I can't believe it. And she's shaking. She said, do you believe that God can do this to somebody? Make them shake like this? And I said, sure he can. I said, God can do anything. So she said, I don't know if I can do my job today. I said, let's pray. She goes, I don't want to get in trouble. I said, I'll keep it short. Believe me, I, I pray real short. <laughs> anyway. So we prayed. And I did keep it short, by the way. And you know, I was thinking when that was all said and done, wow, you know, sometimes I look at situations in my life and I think, there's nothing that could come good out of this one, right? No way! Dennis should be outlawed, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, 
and I believe me, nothing of me because I can't even say I had prayed that morning for a divine appointment per se. But God just uses it. That's who he is. And so can we, can we as people look at some of these situations in our lives and really truly believe that even if it doesn't go the way we want or expect, that Jehovah Rapha, our healer, can use it. Can he? We've seen it, haven't we? We've all seen it. But we're like the children of Israel. We go away from bitter waters becoming sweet to complaining again. You know what? The Lord says, murmuring and complaining don't please him. Because when we murmur and complain, in essence what we're doing is saying, God, this situation, wherever I am right now, is not good enough. You're not enough for me, so I'm going to complain. And somehow that impacts the heart of God. Now, as I say this, I say it with fear and trembling. Because I will tell you, I am a person who can do the same thing as everybody else. I can look at a situation and start to squawk about it. But it doesn't please the Lord. And so the people are grumbling. The people are complaining. Hold your finger in Exodus. And we are going to end in a couple minutes here. We're not going to get far into this chapter. But I want to show you something in Deuteronomy. So here's how the books go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. So that's the fifth book of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And let's look at just three verses here. Three verses. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. Moses speaking. All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do. Deuteronomy 8.1 That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. And you shall remember, verse 2, all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Now this is at the culmination of this. That he might, notice this, why did he do this? That he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is getting ready to go into his earthly ministry and for 40 days he has not ate or drank anything. Now I'm not sure how humanly that's possible, but he fasted for 40 days. I'm pretty sure the text says he didn't eat or drink. You can check me on that. Let me know if I'm wrong. And so the devil comes to him tempting him. Do you remember this? Matthew 4, Luke 4. And the devil says, if you are the Son of God, or it could be translated, since you are the Son of God, command these stones to turn into bread. Now, where was Jesus at this moment? In the wilderness, on the heels of a 40-day fast, is he hungry? 
Well, we know Jesus in his incarnation was 100% human, so he experienced everything we experience. He was hungry. And the devil came to him in that moment and said, if you're the son of God, command the stone to be turned into bread. Now, what do we call Matthew 4? We call it the blank of Jesus. What do we call it? The temptation of Jesus. Did you know that when you look at the word, the Greek word for test or temptation, it is the same word? What the Lord often uses as a test, Satan uses as a temptation. And so here's Jesus in the wilderness, and he's 40 days, guys, he's hungry. And the devil comes, and what does he prey on? The area of weakness. He says, if you're the son of God, tell the rock to become bread. And Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, or it is written, I should say. He says, it is written. By the way, the term it is written is a Greek term, gegraptai. And it means it was written, it is written, and it stands written forever. Here's what Jesus says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, when you guys think about your faith and and what you're aspiring to be, who's your model? Jesus. How long has he not eaten? 40 days. What does Satan prey on? The area where he would be most susceptible, we would say. What's Jesus' answer in a moment where he would be justifiably hungry and in need of sustenance, he says, I'm not going to turn that rock into, into bread. Because man does not live on bread alone. Now, when Jesus was talking a little while later, he, he uh, gave this, sa- this famous discourse is called the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, why are you guys so anxious about your life? He said, why do you always worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink? Now, I have a 13-year-old, and every two hours, he's worried about what he's going to eat or drink. I'm famished. I haven't eaten for an hour and 39 minutes. And I can understand, you know, growing boys. But Jesus says, "Why why are you so anxious about that stuff? He says, don't you know that that's the stuff that the Gentiles seek? He says, "Your your heavenly Father knows you need these things but we're anxious about it all the time. We build our lives around these things, eating and drinking and where we're going to go, what restaurant, and, and we have so many things to do in America. But you know what we don't often think about, even as Christians, is that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And when God kept food from Israel for three days, or, or water from three day, for three days and food for a time. Was he doing it because he just despised them and really just wanted to play games with them and taunt them? Was he up in heaven saying, yeah, I wonder how long it'll take old Fred to start whining again? No. What was he trying to do? What does Deuteronomy 8 tell us? He was trying to humble them and he was trying to reveal what was in their heart test it to see if they would keep his commandments or not and to make them understand something that a man's life is not wrapped up in the abundance of his possessions have you met Christians in countries 
Some of you have, we've talked about this before, who have more joy and zeal and passion for God and they have, compared to you, nothing of worldly possession to speak of. Nothing. They don't even know where their next meal is coming from. But they found out something about God. That God is faithful. And sometimes when God puts a storm in an American Christian's life, we automatically think, oh man, what's going on? You know, I'm a little short here, or this is going on here. I'm going through this trial, I just don't understand it. And God, you know what God's doing? He's putting us to the proof. He's saying, yeah, you live in America. Yeah, you have everything you want at your fingertips. But why do you serve me? You say, well... We want to say, genuinely because we love you. But this is why the Lord does what he does. And as we get into next week, we're going to talk about this bread from heaven. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how God wants us to daily seek him for provision. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, Jesus said, one of the stanzas in the prayer is, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And what the deeper spiritual meaning for us tonight, I think, is this. Will we learn to trust God on a day-to-day basis? Do you know that the biggest weakness in the Christian church tonight is that most people don't know what it means to live day-to-day depending on Jesus Christ. We're very autonomous people. We like to operate and do our thing and control things. And we like predictability, don't we? We like to know the next thing and what's going on. But the kingdom of God is not necessarily like that. God says, I want you to depend on my spirit. I want to go deep into your heart and I'm going to strip some things and I'm going to mold and shape you at times and it isn't going to necessarily feel good because that's not my goal. My goal is not necessarily to make you happy in the sense of gleeful all the time, but holy. My goal is to make you usable in the Master's hands. And in order to do that, I've got to mold and shape you. And there are going to be times when it's not comfortable. There are going to be times when you don't understand. But I'm doing it for a purpose. And see, that's where it comes down to faith, doesn't it? Can we trust Him? Like I said, I'll say to you as I close tonight, I say these words to you with fear and trembling. Because I know that uh, it's not easy for all of us. But we have a faithful God. And He will give us manna for today if we'll seek Him. So next week we'll get into the manna. Father, as we've talked about some things tonight, we see in the children of Israel a picture of us. How quickly we can move from worshiping to grumbling. How quickly we can, we can say with our mouths we love you and we're dedicated to you but when something goes amiss it's much harder for us to really back those words, Lord. And tonight we confess it. We confess to you, Lord, that we are quick on the trigger sometimes to murmur and complain. We're quick to say something under our breath or to let the same tongue as James says that praises God then curse our brother who's made in the image of God. And then James says, this, these things should not be this way. 
And so, Father, that tells me that we need to grow in this area. We need to learn what it means to depend upon you. We need to see a picture of Jesus tonight where 40 days, no eating. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to know God, to glorify God, and to be used by God. Lord, we don't understand all the ins and outs of that, but we we do tonight look at it and say, boy, sometimes it certainly appears that we have a very shallow uh, view of spiritual things at times. And that needs to change. And, And you're so gracious with us, Lord, because you're patient and you're a God who is long-suffering and you're not quick to anger and you just, you just do your thing and, and you gent- gently operate in our lives. And we know behind all of this is a heart of love, a heart of a father that says, I'm trying to do something here and, and I'm willing to do it gently at times and even in a stronger way at times to make you the individual that you need to be. So Lord, may we tonight trust in you and and know that as you mold and shape us in the times that we don't understand and the times that we're put to the proof and we don't like what we see, that you're doing it for a reason. And I pray that these lips and this heart will, will more often bring you glory and glorify you through the the sunny and the rainy days. Lord, again, tonight, I think we all can say that that's our heart, but we we want to move into that place, Lord, um, <laughs> with, we pray with uh, you working with us with a gentle hand, and we know that that is your heart. So tonight, we just we just cast ourselves before your merciful throne. We know that as we do that, you tell us we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We are needy people. We need your presence. We need your strength. We need the hope that you, you alone can give us. And so, Lord, we'll even praise you in the storm. We'll praise you in the times of lean and the times of plenty. As the Apostle Paul said, he had learned the secret of contentment. He knew how to be content when he was abounding and abased. And then he said he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Thank you for that tonight. We pray that in Jesus' holy and mighty name. Amen. Tom, do you have a final one for us? Would you stand? On this night, we normally have a closing song and then we have a time of prayer. If you have time to stick around, we'll get into some uh, three or four, persons of three or four for some prayer.